Okay, we'll be reading um, the last part of uh, Hebrews chapter 4, starting verse 14, uh, and then the whole chapter of Hebrews 5. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but was at all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. But he can, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You may be seated. Good morning. Boy, I think some of you were... Still looking at something or something. Good morning. morning. All right, good. Hey, before we uh, jump in here to the Word, uh, I'd like you to join me in in prayer and um, as we pray to be asking of the Lord what He might desire to teach of us, teach us this morning from this passage of Scripture. We'll be looking at the at the first ten verses in Hebrews five. But let's, uh, let's go before the Lord and, and ask of him to do uh, a work that only he can do as we come to his word this morning. Father, you are a God who speaks. And we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear you speaking from your word. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see that you are still speaking today. Lord, some of us have barriers in the way As we open these pages of scripture, whether it's a lack of knowledge, a passage that's seemingly difficult to grasp, or 
or simply a mind that wanders easily. God, I ask today that you would remove the barriers that exist in order that we might walk in this truth. This book of Hebrews that's open before us is consistently pointing toward a Messiah high priest. I pray that you would help us to receive your word, to receive the truth about Christ, and to know that his work has been completed at the cross. And so we just say thank you, Father, for the cross of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to give you a a country, and I'd like for you to tell me the language that is most likely spoken in that country. Don't worry, this isn't going to be too difficult, I hope. China. Very good. I know there'll be some difficult answers and responses here. Germany. France. Spain, the United States, English. You guys passed the test. That's pretty good. But, but I think that you also know that speaking English, living in these United States of America, it, it's, it's probably apparent to the majority of you that there are varying dialects within the English language. You know, just a simple example Some might say, what are you guys doing? Some other folks in the United States might say, what are y'all doing? You have this language lingo on the East Coast. Someone who lives in Philadelphia, New York, is going to talk a certain way. Someone on the West Coast tends to talk a certain way. There are certain nuances, certain words that they would use that maybe someone living in the Midwest wouldn't use. And I'm sure you've got some great stories of some of those things. If you've uh, lived in the north and south, east or west, you know probably exactly what I'm talking about, this language barrier. But you know, one who knows the English language is quickly challenged when he's dropped, let's say, in the land of China for a length of time. I know we've had some folks maybe that have traveled for work and spent some time in other countries. You can probably relate to this, at least in part. But you spend a day in another country where people are speaking a different language and you'll quickly discover a disconnectedness like never before. Why is that? You can't communicate with anyone. They don't speak your language. You don't speak their language. Maybe this morning as we have the word open before us, maybe it's not a language barrier, so to speak, for you, but maybe it's a competency barrier of some kind. You know, this week, uh, Noah, you gave me a great uh, illustration here this morning for this, and unbeknownst to you, I know you didn't even realize it, probably, but he was helping with our, our computer this week, and he came to the house and he asked me a question. And he said something like, what's the name of your computer? And I kind of looked at him. He probably thought I was, you know, what do you mean you don't know the name of your computer? I didn't know my computer had a name. You know, I was like, I don't know. 
and try this. You know, I gave him two or three things to try. I, I didn't know. Maybe, I do know now what my name is, the computer name. He, he shared that with me or, you know, kind of showed me the, how to get to finding out what your computer name is. I think for me also, as I was thinking about some barriers, I know some things with cars. I know just enough to, you know, know where the dipstick is under the hood. And um, I don't know a whole lot else what's under there. And, you know, I remember it wasn't too long ago, someone was at the shop and the guy was asking me, he said, so, he said, do you have a, a, a V6 or a V8? And I was like, I don't know. Do you have a 2.1 liter engine or 2.4? I don't I don't know, I had this look like, I, I don't know. There was a barrier there. He was speaking a language I didn't know. And I think sometimes uh, we see this too today. Uh, many of you young people are familiar with this language in social media. Social media has a language of its own. It seems like we've become adept at communicating words with one letter. That's the way texting language works. Social media has created a language all of its own. The shorter the word and the better. And sometimes I get emails from guys that I referee with and I just get one word answers. It's like, you know, I crafted two paragraphs to talk about something and it's yes. And I like things short and to the point, but I also like to be able to have someone give me a complete sentence so that I understand that they got and received my message. But yes or no... Or, okay, sometimes those are responses that I receive. Maybe you receive some of those as well. We've been made by God, church, to communicate with one another. And to communicate with Him as well. And there are two primary components of communication. When we think about communication, there's the messenger or the speaker, and there's the receiver or the listener. And as we think about this messenger-receiver line here. What happens? And it's actually happening right now. He's in, I'm speaking. I'm the messenger. I'm giving words. You're the receiver. You're listening to the words that are being spoken. And I was thinking about what happens in the midst of communication when there's a messenger and a listener, a receiver. I believe that the receiver, at some level, is thinking about chemistry of the speaker. In other words, is there any kind of relationship here that I have between this speaker and myself? Do we have any relationship here? And I think if the receiver of the message, there's, there's very little, if any, relationship, I think the tendency is going to be for that person to distance himself from what's being spoken. I think there's also character of the person speaking. There's this question for the receiver, can I trust what he's saying? If I can't trust him, my, my response is going to be, I'm just probably going to disregard what he has to say. I think also the receiver is, is listening for clarity. Is he making sense with what he's speaking? If not, the receiver may very well disengage from the message. There's also a conciseness component. Is he to the point? Is he getting, arriving at the point of which he's speaking? And after a while, the receiver may, if he doesn't think that's happening, the receiver may very well drift. And then there's the competency. Does he know what he's talking about? 
If the receiver doesn't really believe that the, messenger, the one who's giving the message has an understanding of what he's talking about, the receiver then is going to probably doubt what's being spoken. There's all of this going on in the midst of communication. The messenger of Hebrews, who is moved along, like all of the other writers in Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, he presents a challenge, specifically to his original audience living in the first century. He's writing in the midst of a transition period where the people of God had been operating according to an Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system. Having heard the message of the cross, the Messiah, and the grace by which we're saved, the listener is confronted with immediate barriers. This isn't what I'm accustomed to. I'm not used to doing things this way. See, there's two different ways of operating. There's a first testament based upon the blood of bulls and goats, gifts and offerings. And a new testament rooted in this one-time sacrifice of the perfect son of God named Jesus. The one referred to in the text as Messiah. Who bore the sins of the world in his flesh upon the cross. And here's the challenge for us. None of us here grew up operating in the Old Testament Levitical system. None of us here have Jewish roots, perhaps. We have very little, if any, understanding of that culture. We are recipients of the letter, having always been accustomed to the new covenant ushered in by Jesus himself. Forgiveness of sins and cleansing from sins took place at the cross some 2,000 years ago. And we are saved by grace through faith and understand that the Bible calls us in Christ to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. We're exhorted often from the word to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And to become doers, it's important we are good hearers. Did you hear that? To become doers, it's important we are good hearers. It's important that we understand the message being proclaimed. Hebrews has some difficult passages. How many of you recognize that as we've gone through Hebrews? There's, and we're getting, we're, we're getting into some territory of some other difficult passages. They are hard. The writer seems to emphasize Messiah as high priest. In fact, lots of time. An effort is given in the book of Hebrews to explaining and defining and showing the significance of Messiah as high priest. From where we are at the end of 4, early 5, all the way through chapter 10, this theme of Messiah as high priest will come to the forefront. So what do you do when the Bible presents a barrier for your understanding? What do you do? When you come to some hard passages of scripture, how do you navigate through them? What's your tendency when you read and you fail to understand the point of the passage? Do you give up on it? Do you research it further? Do you hope that the preacher is going to preach on it this week? Does it cause you to drift away entirely from the word? See, the Jews in the first century are the recipients of a letter that would have startled them to a large degree. Would have startled them. I believe that as we look at the text, 
And we see that this concept, this message that's being presented by the writer, it would have shaken them to the core hearing about this Messiah who is Jesus, this Messiah who is deemed the Son of God, this Messiah who died and rose again, this Messiah who stands as a great high priest having passed through the heavens. You see, the people of the day were accustomed to an earthly high priest. Aaron is the one mentioned in verse 4 of chapter 5. Aaron is the brother of Moses and Miriam. And they grew up with a dad and a mom who were from the priestly tribe of what? Levi, right? Levi means attached. That's appropriate. Because Levi, the tribe of Levi was literally attached to the Lord. It was his people. Levi was the third son born to Jacob and Leah. So Aaron is high priest, his sons as priests. This is what the listener of Hebrews, this is what he was accustomed to. And yet the writer of Hebrews is pointing out that they have someone better. That's the theme of what we're talking about in Hebrews, anchored to someone better. In Hebrews, writer, he's talking about, listen, you've got someone better. He's advocating a greater high priest to pay attention to. The Messiah is this great high priest. Now, the first century listener is struggling with something we today acknowledge as truth. Jesus, the Son of God, is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We aren't familiar with Aaron as high priest, nor with his sons as priests at the altar. So do you see the barriers in communicating how terms and ideas can make sense in one generation but come across as foreign in generations later or language even in the same country depending on where you live might mean something different I think we have some of this going on right here in the book of Hebrews the first century listener had an understanding of certain things that the 21st century listener we're not clued into And yet the 21st century listener, we understand some things that the first century audience didn't understand. The cross hadn't, the cross, the cross wasn't fully understood as we'll come to see. There wasn't a reception of that marvelous truth that many of us here have received. So it's good in one sense to know that we're not the only ones working through a barrier in communication. While we may have a difficulty associating the Jewish high priestly role, the first century Jews had a hard time connecting their idea of Messiah with one we know as Jesus. They knew of Aaron and the priestly family and the set-apart role that they played in God's eyes for the children of Israel, but they had trouble seeing Messiah in the role of high priest. And for many believers in Jesus today, we encounter chapters of Hebrews that continue to speak of Messiah in his high priestly role. Maybe some of you, as you read through Hebrews, you see all of the time and attention spent to helping understand Messiah as high priest. And maybe you're going, why? Why is the writer spending so much time emphasizing Messiah as high priest? We've got to understand he's addressing their challenge. And he's highlighting how this Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, is a better high priest. 
the one to whom they now need to turn their undivided attention. You see, first century listeners are having difficulty breaking free from their roots of Judaism. They had been used to worshiping God through a human priest who atoned annually for their sins by means of the blood of bulls and goats. That's the way it used to be. The Messiah is not only better than the angels and better than Moses, better than Joshua, but he stands as a better high priest. And the lengthy effort on the part of the writer is meant to help them understand how it is so that Messiah can be high priest and that he is in fact a greater high priest than Aaron and those that followed. Remember, friends, the, the purpose statement of this book of Hebrews, it's found in Hebrews 13, 22. He says, and I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Bear with this word of exhortation. In other words, as the messenger given words by the Holy Spirit, words that are profitable for your soul, bear with what I'm speaking. You probably aren't naturally inclined to receive these words. You probably are going to bristle when you hear some of what I have to say. I'm appealing to you to bear with this word of exhortation. Where it seems disconnected to your present living, know that God has something to say and he wants to connect you to his truths for living. Trust that God's word is faithful and true and will always point you down a path of righteousness. It's always going to lead to a better outcome in your life. Listen, isn't this also true of each one of us here today? When something that we read in these pages, when something we read is difficult, it's hard for us to understand and to receive. Perhaps it seems disconnected to us. And we are confronted with whether to receive this word or not. I believe the God of heaven is appealing to us with his word of truth. Bear with this word of exhortation. You might be reading this and it might not make sense to you right now. It might not make sense to you tomorrow. It might not make sense next week. It might not even make sense next year. But this is my word, God says. You can trust that my word is good. It's true. It's altogether profitable for your soul. So in an effort to communicate the word of God and to effectively steer you to a place of understanding with Hebrews 5, let's look together at these verses desiring to hear God. You may not think the writer needs to spend as much time as he does about Messiah as high priest. You may not be familiar with first century customs of worship and how the priests functioned in the daily activities and lives of the people. You might be turned away hearing about this stranger named Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? And how does that relate to me? Communication barriers line the way. Yet when you open the pages of Scripture anywhere in the context of these 66 books we have, you can know that it is all intended for soul tending, soul nurturing, soul profitability. He desires to communicate with you through his word. That's, that's something we can say yes to and stand firmly upon. He desires to communicate with us through his word. 
And the spirit who resides in you, if you are in Christ this morning, is able to translate and teach. He's able to walk you through any barrier that might exist in your understanding. The spirit oftentimes takes you through and not around the barriers. There's a big difference, isn't there? I think we like to avoid the barriers. I think we like to try and hop over like a hurdle, hop over those barriers when we come to them. But God's word is intended to move us through the barriers that we might understand. Having a great high priest on the throne of grace is helpful for making it through the barriers, friends. It's when we come to this throne of grace that we obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's where we left off, the end of chapter 4. Can you find such help from an earthly high priest? What you think is a better way, the writer is saying to his audience, let me show you that it's not at all a better way. And to those of you who already have received Messiah, the Christ, as the better way, perhaps seeing him as your high priest will prove helpful as you grow in the grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. You see, coming to the throne of grace, you will find grace to help you. Growth in grace and knowledge of Jesus happens as you come into his presence. He's a God of grace and a God of mercy, and he desires to share that with you when you come with a heart and a mind to know him. The writer is going to begin with the earthly high priest, and then in verse 5, he's going to show how this great high priest who has passed through the heavens is better. Know that the writer's objective here in the text is not simply to show that one is better than the other. That's not the, the point of emphasis. Knowing the Messiah is a better high priest, listen, produces better living. There's an outcome, there's a result. Anchored in someone better leads to a new life rooted in Christ. It produces fruit that's evident. Led by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anchored in someone better shows itself in a life of faith. Trusting that what he says in his word, he is able to perform. So as you read Hebrews 5, 1 through 10... I believe you're going to begin to see, listen, you're going to begin to see the limitations of the earthly high priest represented by the first or old covenant, okay? The limitations. And you're also going to see right up next to that how limitless the great high priest really is. Jesus, the Son of God. He's the one who ushers in the new covenant, the new way of living. So you have a, a high priest, earthly high priest who had limitations. And that will become very clear, I hope, as we read through the first few verses of chapter 5. And we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens who is limitless. Keep those things in mind as we, as we go. His listener has received in, in 4.16 this message to come. There's a call here to come boldly to the throne of grace where this great high priest is residing, having passed through the heavens. And it's here at this throne of grace where one obtains mercy and finds grace to help him in his time of need. So what about help from the earthly high priest? 
What can I expect when I go to him to, help, to find my help in time of need? The, the writer here is, is helping his listener understand the limitations of this earthly high priest. There is only so much this earthly high priest can do. And he's going to open for them a, a window to help them be able to see that there is one in this great high priest, this one who is deemed the Son of God, Jesus. He's already labeled his name in the scripture. Jesus, this is much greater high priest. One that you need to be turning to and looking to for your salvation. So what are the expectations of this earthly high priest? First of all, we see in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, he serves as an intermediary role between God and man. And it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men. Taken from among men, appointed for men, and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, see this earthly high priest, he's taken from among men. He's chosen from men. He's appointed for men. And he serves men in things pertaining to God. This speaks of the realm of, the, of, the, of their function. They had to do with helping people and their worship and service to God. This earthly high priest was designated to offer, it says, both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He was the one, if you read the scriptures, he was the one who they would bring the animals, bulls, goats, and the priests would be the ones that would sacrifice these on the altar on behalf of the people, has to do with sins. There's, there's blood in the sacrifice. I'm giving you these words to help you think through pictures, to help you think through how this is going to connect down the road with the Messiah, the great high priest, Jesus. He served an intermediary role, we see from verse 1. Secondly, what else can we expect? We see that he, in verse 2, he can relate to men on the basis of his own weakness. And that's interesting. I want you to keep that in mind. On what basis can he relate to men? Because the great high priest that we serve relates to us on a different way. In fact, it says he's able to have compassion on those who are ignorant, ignorant of their own sins. He's able to have compassion on those going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. The word there has in mind uh, encircled or encompassed. Sin is lying around him. It's used, that's the same word that's used as the millstone around the neck. Same idea here as it relates to this earthly high priest. He's able to relate to the people because he himself is encircled or encompassed with sin. On that basis, he can, he can relate. He can have this compassion. In fact, the compassion that's mentioned here in verse 2 is a different word than we see in verse 15 of chapter 4. When it's talking about the great high priest who cannot sympathize. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Sympathize and compassion, two different words here. 
Here in the text, it has in mind, chapter 5, verse 2, compassion has in mind to suffer according to a measured limit. The, the earthly high priest can exercise moderate and tender judgment. That's the idea. Moderate and tender judgment with respect to those who are ignorant of certain sins and with respect to those who are being led astray. So the basis of his moderate and tender judgment is that he himself is completely encircled or encompassed in sin. One writer says that the high priest has infirmity, has sinful tendencies lying around him. That is, he is completely encircled by sin since he has a sinful nature, which if unrepressed will control his entire being. So we see that he serves the role of an intermediary between God and man. And we see also here in verse 2. Verse 2 brings out that he can relate to men. But he relates to them on the basis of his own weakness. That he himself is encompassed with sin. He can relate to them in that regard. What else do we see? Look at verse 3. In verse 3, it's closely connected to verse 2 because it begins... Because of this, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So we see that this earthly high priest, he's under obligation. That's the idea of the word. He must. He's required. He is obligated to offer sacrifices for himself first. I'm hoping as we go through this, you're seeing and you're already drawing lines and seeing how the great high priest is already much better than this earthly high priest. I hope you're already seeing some of this. This earthly high priest, what you would expect to see from this earthly high priest is that he is under obligation because of the encompassed sin that surrounds him. He's obligated to offer sacrifices for himself first. In fact, I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 16. I was reading that and studying that a little bit. The Day of Atonement. Okay? And before offering sacrifices for the people on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was obligated to offer sacrifices for himself and his own household first. To atone for his own sins and the sins of those in his house. He did that first. What about verse 4? And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So what can we expect about this earthly high priest? He's called by God to this place of honor. He's called by God. No man serving as high priest takes for himself the role of high priest, but is called by God as Aaron was. He's put forth as the example, as Aaron was. One writer says that the high priest must be divinely called to his office. Think about this. One who is encompassed with infirmity, encompassed with sin, would hesitate to offer sacrifice for sin unless called by God to do so. Pretty high bar of responsibility. So the earthly high priest is taken from among men. He's appointed for men in things pertaining to worshiping God. He's the go-to person to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to show moderate and tender judgment, but on the basis that he himself is encircled with sinful tendencies. And because of those sinful tendencies, he is then under obligation to do, first for himself, what he does for the people. And that is offer sacrifices for his own sin. 
And no man can take this honor of high priest unto himself, but must be called by God into the position. And Aaron is used in verse 4 as that example of one called by God to be high priest. That's a picture, uh, uh, at least in part, a snapshot of the earthly high priest. I hope that going through those four verses, you're already starting to see some major differences between this earthly high priest and being able to actually see how much he would be able to help people in their time of need. And begin to see this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Verses 1 through 4 might have been more helpful to the 21st century listener. Perhaps any barriers that you might have had about the earthly high priests have been answered, at least in part. And if there's still a lack of clarity, which there may be, I encourage you to hang in there. The writer is not done speaking about this. He's going to elaborate on this over the next several chapters. For now, though, the text turns a corner, starting in verse 5, and he puts Christ forward. Picking up where verse 4 left off, and having shown the expectations of the earthly high priest, the writer now positions Christ as the better high priest and links the why to Scripture and to his finished work. Okay? Keep in mind that verses 5 through 10 would have provided much needed help for the first century listener deliberating on Messiah as high priest. Okay, Remember, communication barriers that exist here between 21st century audience, you and me, and the first century audience. It's important that we see both parties have barriers in the text. So Christ is a better high priest. How is that so? How is it that he's deemed better? Verses 5 and 6 in the text. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Why is it that Christ is a better high priest? First of all, I think we see in the text that he didn't glorify himself to become high priest. He didn't glorify, he didn't die to become high priest. He didn't do something. In, in other words, what we see in the text is that God positioned Jesus as high priest. God did it. How do we know? Well, these two scriptures, Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4, they both begin with, You are, speaking, the Father speaking to the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you, he says in Psalm 2.7. And you are a priest, how long? Forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. The scriptures testify that this Jesus became high priest at God's word. At God's word. On the basis of his identity as God's son. You are my son but also on the basis of God's declaration. You are a priest forever. See, Jesus wasn't taken from among men to serve as high priest. Long before he tabernacled among men, he was deemed high priest. Let's, let's get that. Jesus wasn't designated high priest because he came down here to earth because he died on the cross and was raised no, 
That's not what we read here. He's deemed high priest long before that. And his position as high priest had nothing to do with waving his banner through the streets of Jerusalem trying to win the votes of the people to his side. That wasn't how he became high priest. God positioned Jesus to be high priest. He's a fitting high priest because he's God's son. And he's a fitting high priest because God said so and declared him to be a priest forever. Now that word forever... That's a long time, isn't it? Forever. That ought to trigger some thoughts. Seems that this high priest has a role to play even after life on earth is through. Hmm. Notice the end of Hebrews 5 or 6. He's going to be a priest. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not today going to spend much time on this except to point out that this Melchizedek fellow is a Mystery of a man, isn't he? Anybody read this Melchizedek and go, he keeps popping up, especially here in Hebrews. Time and time again, his name comes up. Is it just me? I'm the only one that's fuzzy when I come to Melchizedek and wonder why the Lord is connecting the Messiah to this person, Melchizedek. He's kind of a hidden figure. God declares Jesus to be priest forever in the order and rank of Melchizedek. For your own purpose and study, Genesis 14, 18 through 20, you see Melchizedek pop on the scene after Abraham wins a battle, right? Helping Lot. He shows up on the scene and he gives tithes to Abraham. But there's some things there that's kind of one of the, one of the initial entry points for Melchizedek. I think it's good to look at that text. But also here in a few weeks, we'll get, we'll get to this. We'll spend some more time in this. Hebrews 7 verse 3 says that this Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Listen. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. This order of Melchizedek is different than the order of Aaron. High priest. Remember, Aaron came from what tribe? Levi. Levi. And this listener, first century, would have been well aware of that. But this Messiah that he's now speaking of, this Messiah who has passed through the heavens, this Messiah, he comes from the line of Judah. Hebrews 7.14 says, for it's evident, it's evident, that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. He comes from a different order, a different rank, according to Melchizedek. In fact, one writer says that the Hebrews had not been familiar with the idea of Messiah being high priest. He had not come from the family of Aaron. He was, his was a priesthood of another order, that of Melchizedek. And the Messiah, while on earth, did not have access to the Jerusalem temple so far as officiating as a priest was concerned. He performed no priestly duties, and this contradicted the whole Jewish conception of the priesthood. And so the writer then feels the need here in Hebrews of explaining somewhat further about this new priest to whom they were to go for salvation. 
See the barriers? The barriers were there. God positioned this Messiah as high priest. Therefore, he is a better high priest. God's the one behind it. Keep looking at the text. Look at verses 7 and 8. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers, this is speaking of Christ, his son, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So we see here and we talk about Christ. He's better. He's a better high priest. He didn't glorify himself to become high priest. But secondly, he understood his need to commune with God, his father. He understood his need to commune with God. Even while in the garden of Gethsemane or while hanging on the cross. And by the way, Psalm 22 is a good psalm to read here connected to what we're talking about. Jesus was communing with God all the way to the end of his life. His dependency upon the Father is seen as he offered sacrifices of a different kind. He offered sacrifices. Look at verse 7. That word offered is the word in the Septuagint that has in mind of, of bringing an offering to sacrifice. And we see that Christ himself, the, the Messiah, who has passed through the heavens, he has offered sacrifices of a different kind. And here in the text, what are those sacrifices? Well, they're described as prayers and supplications with cries and tears. And the earthly high priest offered sacrifices. What did his look like? Looked like the form of sacrifices for his own sins. In the form of a bull, if you read Leviticus 16. This great high priest offers prayers to God, to the one who was able to rescue him out from death. And I use that word in that manner, very clearly and specifically, out from death. I want you to notice in the text, at least in the New King James, the word from. The preposition has in mind out from inside of something. Out from inside of something. The word is used here in a sense, it's important that God saved Jesus out from inside of what? Death. Notice he didn't save the gospel. We have some real challenges with the gospel message if we take what the Hebrew writer is saying and subscribe that he prayed that God would save him from death. Listen, and the Hebrew writers already talked about this. He had to die. Jesus did die. The Bible says that he lived, he died. He was buried. Three days later, he was raised. That's the, that's the short synopsis of the gospel in Corinthians 15. He died. The gospel gets seriously aligned, misaligned. It's, it's out of proportion. It's, it's not the gospel if we eliminate Jesus dying. The writer of Hebrews has already told us this, that he had to become like us that he might die, that he might taste death for everyone. In fact, he says it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering, which culminated in what? His death on the cross. 
that was something that was a little fuzzy as I read through it. What, what, what's it mean when he's, he's crying out to him who was able to save him from death? To save him from inside death. To, to save him from where he was. This is, this is something he's praying. He's not praying and granted freedom from dying at the cross. Can we, let's see that in the text. Make sure we don't miss the point here. He's praying to the one who can rescue him, who can, and what we see in the gospel records, he does in fact raise him from the grave and was heard because of his godly fear. You see, though this great high priest was a son by nature, verse 8, though he was a son by nature. In other words, it's referring to his divinity. Though he was a son, he's God's son. He learned obedience by that which he suffered. And boy, when I read that, it reminded me of Philippians 2.8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to what? To the point of where he just didn't feel comfortable anymore? He became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. He carried out and submitted himself to the will of the Father. He operated with the spirit of humility and became obedient to the point of death. His lifelong communion with the Father taught him much, especially in the midst of a world that hated him and desired on many occasions to rid themselves of this man. His lifelong communion with the Father helped him withstand the onslaught of the evil one as well. He learned obedience as a man, and that obedience, listen, that obedience took place over time. You might remember uh, early on in Luke's gospel, Jesus growing in wisdom and stature. He grew, just like some of you are growing physically. He grew. Over time, he learned things. And yet in all of that, it doesn't erase the fact that he's God. He became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. And I'm grateful as I read that because suffering didn't deter this great high priest. Well, praise God that we have a high priest who willingly died on the cross and rose again three days later and now intercedes on our behalf before the Father. His priestly role continues even yet today, doesn't it? A large part of that had to do with his communion with God the Father. His connectedness to the Father. We see in verse 9, something else that makes Christ greater, better high priest. Verse 9 says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here we see he's the cause of eternal life. He's the cause. That's what the word author has in mind. Having been perfected, he became the author or the cause of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let's be clear here in the text. This great high priest, having been perfected, that is, having accomplished the goal fixed by God the Father. He accomplished it. That was the goal. 
He's become now the reason, the cause, the author of eternal life. One writer said that Messiah in his death on the cross is the cause of our salvation. His death is that from which our salvation proceeds. His death. Let's also be clear on this. To all those who obey him. It's not placing any kind of restrictions on Messiah's eternal salvation. Or or putting forth any kind of works-based idea. The all those who obey him is simply a description of the ones who receive such a wonderful gift of salvation and walk daily in it all the way to the end. Remember, that's been one of the themes here in Hebrews. Persevering, enduring all the way. Friends, this is why we speak so often of the cross. Having been perfected, having finished what the Father had for His Son to do, having reconciled man to God through His death on the cross, He became the author, the reason, the cause of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Salvation is only made possible through this great high priest. Remember Acts 4.12? There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Jesus. Is he not better than the earthly high priest? Well, there's one more verse. It continues from verse 9. Called by God as high priest, according, here it is again, according to the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek. Who was made like the Son of God, who remains a priest continually. In that rank, in that order, that's whom God designated his son to be. You are a high priest. The the, the last thing here with with verse 10 is that he is, and I'm using the word specifically here, he is saluted by God as high priest. He's saluted. When you think of a salute, right? You you think there's a picture that comes to mind. And here in verse 10, really in many ways, we see these are are bookends. Verse 5 and verse 10 serve as bookends. So having been perfected at the cross, serving as the author of eternal salvation, the Messiah is called by God as high priest according to this order of Melchizedek. And the word called here is an interesting word. It has in mind to give a name to publicly, to salute, to hail, to greet, to designate aloud. Having finished his work, God now publicly declares his son, To be priest, high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Whereas earlier the Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest, here the emphasis on God's calling flows out of the finished work of his son at the cross. Which again points us back to Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and of those of heaven, and on those of earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 10, God is saluting, declaring publicly, because he's been perfected. 
having gone through the sufferings which culminated in his death, having been raised, this is my son. This is the high priest forever. I pray that some of the barriers to understanding this text have, have, been, have been knocked over this morning. It's my hope that the barriers have at least started to come down. And over the next several weeks in Hebrews, the writer is going to speak of the Messiah as high priest. And he's going to continue to show how this high priest is better. As you remember this text, I'd like to leave you with three words that I trust will effectively communicate the role of our great high priest in this passage. I'm going to give you three words. I'm going to give you three short scriptures that go along with those three words. If you don't get anything else, I'm hoping you get these three words to take with you to remember about high priest. This great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Here's the first word. Intercessor. Intercessor. You think about the role of the high priest here on earth. He was an intercessor. He was a mediator between God and and the people. But this great high priest that we have is an intercessor in the true sense of the word. One verse I'd like to give you is Romans 8.34. Romans, that wonderful passage. I love Romans 8, the entirety of Romans 8. But in chapter 8, verse 34, he asks a question at the beginning of the verse. He says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen who is even at the right hand of God. In other words, he has ascended. He's sitting at the right hand. Who also makes intercession for us. As our high priest, Christ is our great intercessor. Seated at the right hand, the throne of the majesty on high. Intercessor. The second word is purifier. Purifier. Or if we were to give a a little handle to that, it would be one who provides our necessary cleansing. You know, the priest was, uh, in the day, he he was the one that people would go to. Several times in the Gospels, remember Jesus would heal a leper. What would he say to the leper? He would say, go to the priest. Go, offer, get, get clean. See, Jesus was telling him to do exactly what the law had called him to do. Abide by those, the rules. Of the day, Jesus was calling them to do the right thing. He had healed them of their leprosy, and now he was having them go to the priest to have the priest do what he was supposed to do to check them out and declare them to be clean. This purifier that we have is our great high priest. I was thinking about 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, this great high priest that we have, because he has been perfected, because he's passed through the heavens, because he's been declared by God to be our high priest forever, because of all of those things, we can go to him boldly. We can go to him to obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And this great high priest promises to cleanse us if we confess our sins. He's a faithful God and the promise is that he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No earthly high priest can do that. Here's the third word. Intercessor, purifier, third one is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Could have used a whole lot of scriptures in this one. 
but I landed on Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That's characteristic of the earthly high priest. And by the way, it says, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of our great high priest, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Finished. Jesus, the great high priest, intercedes for you before the Father even now. Jesus, the great high priest, purifies you and sanctifies you by the word even now. Jesus, the great high priest, sacrificed himself for you some 2,000 years ago at the cross. The work has been done. It's finished at the cross. God is speaking in these days through his son. Do you remember that? That's how this whole book begins. His son has spoken clearly by completing the work given to him from the father. And this completed work of the great high priest gets communicated. Listen, it gets communicated and spoken through a cross. And to those who are perishing, that cross is deemed foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, the cross is what? Power of God. The cross is the power of God. Amen? It's the power of God in our lives. Corinthians 1.18 He's our intercessor. He's our purifier, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And he's our great sacrifice. The perfect lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word that you've given. And I do pray, Lord, that this morning it's been helpful for clarifying some things that we maybe previously didn't understand. I do believe as we open the pages of Hebrews, there are some hard things here. There's some hard things for us to understand in part because we're so far removed from that way of operating the first century Jewish culture. And yet we also recognize and realize as we look to the text that the first century listener has some barriers as well that they were endeavoring to overcome and needing to work through. Father, I pray that as we encounter those kinds of barriers in the text, that we would cry out to you, ask of you through your spirit to open our eyes that we might see, to give us a heart to, to know, to give us a mind that wants to grasp these truths that you've given to us in your word. Your spirit is always and only going to point us to the things of Christ. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would help us and teach us and instruct us in this word of truth. And that you would continue throughout our days knocking down barriers that might be there. That we could go through those barriers as your spirit takes us through them. We'd be able to see the joy of knowing and embracing and recognizing the glorious truth of our great Messiah, High Priest, who has passed through the heavens, the one who now calls us to come. Father, I pray that this church would do just that. In light of who your son is, we would make every effort to come boldly 
to this throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We thank you, Father, for these encouraging words. Thank you for teaching us through your word. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in these truths. Hold high the name of Jesus, our great high priest. In his name we pray. Amen.